thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the, um, the Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States has finally agreed on a revision of the liturgy. Now, this is great news. It's wonderful news. Because the, now the liturgy is starting to move in the direction we need it to move into. And you will see that those changes, as they're introduced, are going to focus again on the holiness of God, on the sacredness, and they may not be perhaps what we would like them to be, but they are definitely a step in the right direction. And I think they may be a, an indication of what is to come. So it is definitely cause for celebration. And tonight, we're focused on one specific item. Last two lectures, we focused on the presence in the New Testament of all those texts that spoke about the end of times, the end of the age that the end of all things is at hand. And on the surface, all those texts would lead you to believe that St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, St. James, the Lord himself, were speaking about the end of the world. But when you understand those in their proper context, you see that that is not the case. They had something entirely different in mind. And that is the end of the old covenant, the covenant based on the law of Moses which was enshrined in the Temple of Jerusalem. That order had to come to an end for the new order to be ushered in. And one important question we had last time, well, if it is true that the new covenant opens for us the gates of heaven, and it is true, if it is true that the new covenant starts the day of the resurrection, some even say the day of the incarnation, but certainly the day of the resurrection, if it is then true that all these things promised by the prophets come into existence on those days, why is there an overlap between the two ages? Why is it that the age of the old covenant continues to exist, meaning that you have sacrifices in the temple, Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ ascended into heaven, Pentecost arrived, the temple was still operating. There were still sacrifices according to the old law, and the Eucharist was being celebrated. You have, therefore, coexistence of the two. From about 33 AD to 70 AD, when Titus came on, on Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. If the new was meant to replace the old, if the old pointed to the new, why is it that for 40 years, for one generation, there is this coexistence of the two. What does it mean? Is it important? Is it important for the book of Revelation? And even more so, is it important for, our, for us today in our lives, in the life of the church? And I would contend that it is extremely important. And that's what I want to show you tonight. In order to understand this, we need to take a look at the early Christian community. In one sense, in an unfortunate sense, our minimal knowledge of the book of Acts, where we see this Christian community coming together and sharing everything and no one owns anything, gives us a kind of a very, very idealized and wrong image and skews our understanding completely. It would seem as if in the beginning of the Christian era, 
when the church was young and had just started, Christians were all dressed in white robes, had a halo behind their back, walked with their hands folded, their heads tilted, and saluted themselves with a slight smile, and hopped from one cloud to the other. That's the sort of idyllic or idealistic image we have of the church. Nothing can be further from the truth. Nothing. They were men and women just like we are. They were thirsty, they were hungry, they were sweated, they had to work, they used, their, they used words to communicate just as we are today. We need to put blood and flesh on those images so that we can understand the purpose of the book of Revelation. After all, the book of Revelation was not written for Christians living in San Diego in 2006. Not principally, secondarily, but not principally. There was a more direct need for the book. A more immediate revelation. As with any other book of Scripture. The letters of St. Paul to Titus were not written with St. Paul thinking, aha, one of these days there'll be preachers on television explaining my letter to Titus. I better be careful about what I'm going to say. He was writing to Titus, specifically to Titus, not thinking that he's writing a letter that would be one day canonized, made part of the canon. That was the last thing on his mind. He had an immediate problem that he was addressing. What was it? Is it important for us? Yes, very much so. In order to capture the drama of that period of 40 years, we must understand the different actors, the different players. And so we start with the Jewish community first. The Jewish community at the time of Jesus... Essentially, if you follow Eusebius, the church historian, there were really seven communities that he addresses. Seven, and all of seven of them play an important role. Before I get into this, I'd like to make an important point that I've not made yet. It is really essential. If you think about Pentecost, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, and then they go out and they preach. Peter is the one who speaks. But really, by their presence, they're all preaching. Silently, but preaching nonetheless. And what is the subject of their message? What are they saying to the world? One fundamental core belief of our church and of all Christians, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, what is presented as proofs of that fact. What are the proofs? What, what, what are the facts that they bring forward? Three of them. The first is their own witness. You need to understand that in a Jewish mentality, when two or more are witnessing, this is a juridical, juridical act. It isn't just, I've seen him. They are putting forth their own word. All right? So it, it carries a lot more weight than what we would say today. Because our word has no weight. Try to go to the bank and say, uh, please give me a loan of $100,000 and I give you my word and I'll give it back to you in two months. And come back and report to me what they will say. I'd be curious. The second, the second is, uh, is going to be the signs meaning the miracles, and notice St. John never uses the word miracle, the signs given by the apostles. Remember the lame who was sitting by the Nicanor gate, the beautiful gate. St. Peter sees him and he tells him, money I have not, but I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Get up. That was a sign given that Jesus rose from the dead, because the dead cannot raise or heal or save. Only God can. All right? Only God can. So those signs that the, that the apostles did were there to prove, to prove that Christ rose from the dead. And the third sign, which is very important, is the accomplishment of the prophecies. This 
third sign was directed to the Jewish audience. It would not have meant much to a Gentile audience, but to the Jews, it means a lot. Now, part of the accomplishment of the prophecies are the prophecy of, is the prophecy of Daniel. Now, you know, we spent quite a bit of time looking at the prophecy of Daniel. What is part of that prophecy? What did Daniel, what did Gabriel tell Daniel? What was going to happen? After the one who is anointed is cut off, what is going to happen? The sacrifice will cease. The temple sacrifice will cease. So therefore, the end of the temple sacrifice is connected to what? Is a proof of what? It is the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see the importance of, the, of that event? It is a proof that Christ is risen. That is why we say that the temple will never be rebuilt. Because to rebuild the Jewish temple today is tantamount to say that Christ is not risen. This is not a question of a building. This is a question of a covenant. And the temple represents and symbolizes the old covenant. And the only way the old covenant will end is when the temple itself will be destroyed so that that sacrifice will cease. That's the essence of the witness to Christ for the apostles. So in the Jewish community, the, the signs, the prophecies are very important, but they must be well understood. And the understanding that a Jew would have of those signs depend on his upbringing and the faction to which he belongs. Seven factions are important because of their participation, not because of the sort of their numbers. Most Jews may not belong to any of them, but their role, the role that these factions play, is very important. The first one is the high priests and the Sadducees. You hear often in the gospel speaking of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were part of the priesthood of the temple. And the interesting thing about them is that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. If you do not believe in the resurrection, if you deny that the resurrection of the dead, what have you effectively denied? The prophets. Outright. Because all what the, what the prophets are really talking about is what is... Uh, they are not talking about a materialistic messianic kingdom. They are talking about the relationship of God with his people and how he is going to affect salvation. And so for instance, Ezekiel, when he's walking in the valley of the dead and you see the dead bones, and when <clears throat> uh, the, there is this, when, when uh, Isaiah, for instance, is also prophesying about the restoration of Israel, when Ezekiel has the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, all these things point to the resurrection of the dead, yet the Sadducees don't believe in it. They're connected to the high priest. Now these two need not be, or should not be confused, although their interests are common. Since 6 AD, the high priests are the house of Sethi, and the head of this family is An, or Annas, and the actual high priest is Caiaphas. Their main interest seems to be in the influence they, they wield through the temple, and they are effectively collaborators with Rome. As long as Rome preserves their earthly power related to the temple, they're happy. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are, are guardians of the law in the sense that they want to make sure that the liturgy temple is observed, that people come to the temple and worship at the temple. They have, essentially... Uh, much in common. What is really interesting is that in uh, AD 43, Saint, uh, Herod uh, Agrippa uh, executed James. And, um, and the year 43 is important because when he came to power, Agrippa removed uh, Theophilus, who was Annas' son from the high priesthood, and replaced him with Simon ben Cantera, who was of the house of Beothos, who was the high priest under his father. But then in 43, he 
took him out and put out in, in his stead Jonathan and then Matthias, his brother, and both of those are sons of Anas, the high priest. And that's when the persecution against James occurred. So you see there is a direct relationship between the initial condemnation of Christ by that particular family of high priests and then the actions they're going to take against the Christians afterwards. This helps us distinguish between those Jews who, for very uh, personal reasons in a sense, for reasons of pride and greed and money, persecuted Christ Christians and those Jews who basically did not. And I hope that this helped dispel this notion that I hear constantly that, uh, that, that somehow um, uh, the, 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 the Jews um, you know, control the world and they are dominating everything and all, you know, anyone who has money must be Jewish and all that kind of nonsense, which, which cannot be backed up by any rational thought, but is backed up by a lot, much of prejudice. And it is important for us to rid ourselves of any of that kind of thought precisely because it, it precludes us from thinking clearly and also it is an act of extreme uh, lack of charity and it's a sin. So I, I do insist on this point because I, it is something that I encounter on a regular basis. Now, that's the first group that we encounter, those Sadducees and the high priests. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are an interesting bunch. On the one hand, some of them, maybe many, we don't know, but at least we know of two who became Christians. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Both of those were Pharisees. Furthermore, we also know that Gamaliel, who was the greatest rabbi of the time, and he was the, the, the teacher of Saul, St. Paul, defended the apostles when they were accused before the Sanhedrin. Right? He was mild. He was not he did not want them to be flogged or put in jail. The Sadducees wanted to do that. Because the Sadducees and the high priest saw the action and the activity of the apostles and of Christ as a direct threat against the temple. Didn't care about anything else. The Pharisees were concerned with the law. And provided that these men came to the temple and worshipped in the temple and did what was required of them in the temple, they were not dangerous. The reason why they they looked at Christ as the enemies precisely because Christ was telling them game's over. The law ends here. Something else is coming. And that they could not put up with. So therefore, where do you see them participating in, in persecution? You see them participating in persecution as soon as Gentiles get into the picture. So for instance, Stephen is a non-Jew. The first martyr. And who agrees to his martyrdom, to, his, to him being killed? Saul. Right? And when they launch persecution outside of Jerusalem, what are they going after? They're going after Gentiles who became Christian. So that is very important for us because we're going to see how it's going to evolve and affect the early church and how it has something to do with the audience to whom Saint, the book of Revelation is addressed. Um, the essence, well, the essence is a third community, but this one is not mentioned in Scripture. There's a number of reasons why it's not mentioned in Scripture, and I've addressed some of those in past talks. What is important to say is that a group of the essence were also known as Baptists because they insisted on the importance of baptism. And so they had daily ablution or daily baptism. This group plays an important role because they will either convert through first John the Baptist and then become Christian or will move farther away into what will become Gnosticism. We see the root of Gnosticism there. I'll, get, I'll, touch, I'll touch on Gnosticism a little bit later. Okay. Then you have the Galileans. You know about the Galileans. The Galileans are the, the guys who come from up north. Christ lived in Galilee. He was thought to be Galilean, although he was not. And uh, Peter, James, um, many of the apostles are Galileans. 
Galilee is a very rich area. Lots of wheeling and dealing. It's considered unclean by the Jews. But Galileans, for some reason, are faithful to the temple. That's important. That's very important. And in their outlook, they're observant of the law. St. Peter himself, a Galilean, when in Acts, has a dream from the Lord, and the Lord puts before him the stable of food that is considered to be unclean. St. Peter says, Lord, you know that nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I've never touched anything unclean. And the Lord will tell him, do not call unclean what I call clean. Right? And it was, was to prepare him to receive Cornelius, the Roman, uh, in baptism into the church. Okay? But Galileans primarily are observant of the law and they are very much attached to the temple. Very much attached to the temple. Then you have the Samar Samaritans. Now the Samaritans may be a little bit more known to you because of the Samaritan woman, the meeting of Jesus at the well. The Samaritans, so a little bit of history, a little bit of background. After the split of the kingdom of David, um, in the year about 920 uh, BC, two kingdoms emerged. The kingdom of the north called the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of the south called the kingdom of Judah. In 780 BC, the Assyrians came down and essentially took over the kingdom of, of the kingdom of the north and forced their people to intermarry with non-Israelites. The result of which is this population called the Samaritans. The Samaritans worship on, in Mount Gerizim. They do not worship in Jerusalem. They do worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they do not know whom they worship, and that's what the Lord told them. When he met the Samaritan woman, he said, Salvation comes from the Jews. You worship whom you do not know. We worship whom we know. Which is another way of saying idolatry. Idolatry is not just worshiping false gods. It is also worshiping the true God the wrong way. You know, and so, for instance, today in the church, when you have uh, Catholics who will pick one teaching of the church, but not the other, who will say, yeah, I am against abortion, but contraception is okay, are effectively idolaters. It's a form of idolatry because they're saying, I will worship God, but not the way I'm supposed to. So it isn't something that has uh, gone out of, uh, out of fashion. Idolatry is very fashionable. Um, the interesting thing is that you have a whole series of characters that emerge from the Samaritans and that will create one day Gnosticism. So Simon Magus is perhaps the most famous of them all. He was a Samaritan. Okay? He became, he received baptism and tagged along St. Peter trying to actually get some of his powers and then finally he was sidelined by St. Peter and went on, made his own religion. Um, and there are others, Cleobius, Meander, and a number of other followers who will all create a form of Gnosticism, which is very important for us because, well actually I'll tell you in a minute why this is important. Let me keep on going. So these are so these guys and there's one more group, the Zealots. Now the Zealots were effectively a Jewish political movement in the first century, and uh, they wanted to rebel against the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted to do. They were politically motivated. They wanted to kick the Romans out, and essentially they um, led the revolt in 66. And um, they took uh, Jerusalem over. They, they, uh, they murdered the high priest in a holy while he was in prayer before the altar of incense. Uh, they murdered each other. I will read to you when we get to understand a little bit more about the wars of the, war of the Jews as written by Josephus, what they did within Jerusalem. Overall, they were essentially a very sad bunch. The reason why 
they are important to us is because of the this thing we call millenarism, which is not the same thing as the millennium. All right, millenarism is a different movement. It is the notion that uh, everything is going wacko. There's nothing we can do about it. We just have to wait for Savior to come and then, you know, clean the whole plate. That's millenarism in a very, in, in a nutshell. I'll, I'll, I am going to touch again on millenarism in a, in, a, in a moment. You also have the Hellenists. Those are Jews of the diaspora. They were away from Jerusalem. They live either in Babylon or in Rome or whatever else. They have dealings with Jews and non-Jews. They do go in pilgrimage to the temple uh, following the appointed feasts. But as far as they're concerned, the temple is not physically present to them day in, day out. Therefore, they are more malleable or can be more flexible in accepting the separation of Christianity from the temple. Okay? Or they can also be very fanatic. They can go either way. And St. Paul met many of them on his way. Some listened to him, heeded his words. Others chased him out. So to, sum, to summarize very briefly what we know about the, the sort of the main or the, the important current of the time among the Jews, you have the high priests and the Sadducees. They essentially run the temple. You have the Pharisees who are the guardian of the law. You have the Essenes who lived a very uh, mystical, they lived a very um, ascetic life outside of Jerusalem um, and um, denounced, denounced the corruption that they saw in Jerusalem. Many of them converted and some turned to Gnosticism. You then have the Galileans who are faithful to the temple, have much dealings with non, non-Jews, and um, are, are uh, um, faithful of the law. You have the Samaritans who have moved away from the, the teachings of Moses in many ways. And then you, you have the, the Zealots, who are a political movement, and then you have the Hellenists, who are there, who live outside of, uh, of Israel, and who form the diaspora. Now, why are these groups important to us? Because many of them become Christian. Christians from all these groups are now in the church. Guess what they bring with them in the church? Their thoughts, their political beliefs, the way they view the world, what is important, what is not. All of that enters the church from day one. The thought that the church in, in, in her beginning was this pure thing consisting of all these people in white robes with halo, walking on little clouds, should leave your mind forever. Forever. It has nothing to do with reality. Even if you're restricted to the apostles themselves, even if you're restricted to the apostles themselves, we've seen the Lord. What does Thomas say? Unless I put my finger in the wound of his hands and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Even among the apostles, you don't have that heavenly glow of perfect, peaceful unity. Never existed, will never exist. How did, this, how did Christ describe the church? The church is a field where the Son of Man comes and sows the good seed. And then the devil comes and sows the bad seed. That's the church. That's how the church is from the beginning to the end. To the last day, that's how, how the church is going to be. We should not expect anything else. The notion that somehow we're going to have this pure Catholic church where you only have saints standing in perfect row with halo on their heads and walking in little clouds and obeying the Pope and, the, and, and having perfect bishops everywhere and everything is perfect is not going to happen. That, that's, that's, that's utopia. This is not reality. The reality is the church is a battlefield on earth. That's what the church is. A battlefield, and will remain so until the last day. That's why this is important for us, because it gives us the right perspective on how to view the church. 
Anyone who has in his mind an idyllic church that was perfect, with perfectly obedient Catholics, with perfect priests and perfect bishops and perfect nuns, is deluding himself. This church does not exist here. It exists only in heaven and in purgatory, but not here. Okay? And we see it right there. They enter the church and they bring with them all that. And that leads us to the, to the crisis that went from 40 AD to 70 AD. And you will see that in this crisis, the only way to resolve it completely is for the temple to go away. There are two key facts that loom large on the early church. Two very important facts. Number one, Jewish nationalism. Right as the church was starting to grow, Jewish nationalism started to grow. The notion that we should be freed from the Romans was now taking root. Here you have Christians of Jewish background. So let me, let me put it to you in a little bit, slightly different context for you to feel the tug, to feel the tension. All right? There is one, at least the only heresy that I know of that is called by a country. There's only one heresy I know of, and maybe that's the only heresy, that is called by a country. You know what it is called? Americanism. It's called Americanism. You know what Americanism is as a heresy? The notion that faith is all about Jesus and me. All I need is Jesus. I pray to Jesus. Nothing else matters. That's a heresy. It is the farthest thing from what Christ had in mind, what God the Father has in mind, what God the Holy Spirit has in mind. Why? Because worship is communal. We don't go to church to worship all by ourselves. We come to church to worship with our brothers and sisters. That's why we say, the priest says, my dear brothers and sisters. He's not using those words just because he wants to be polite. Or he has nothing else to say. He's using it because it is a reality. It is a heavenly... We are brothers and sisters. Look around you. You're sitting with brothers and sisters. You may not like it, but you better get used to it because guess what? The hope is that many of those around you right now are going to be in heaven with you for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. And maybe some members of your family will not be there. And so some stranger sitting here right now with you will be a lot closer to you than your mother or your father. Do you realize that? That's what Catholicism is all about. But the American way, the I did it my way, oh no, I don't need anybody else. All I need is Jesus. Never mind the Holy Spirit. And never mind God the Father. I got Jesus, I got everything. Really? Okay. I'm not going to go on and on. But how do you feel when you hear the church calling this Heresy, Americanism. You feel happy and joyful? There is a tug. Why? Because you love this country, and then you have your faith. Well, imagine how it was for those Jews who had the temple, the liturgy, Moses. Everything was given to them by God. Everything was there. And there's these Romans, these Goyim, these people worse than dogs ruling over you. And now you become Christian. What does that mean? Does this mean sudden transformation? Does it mean that you, know, you go to see St. Peter, he just opens up your skull, pulls your brain out, puts a new one in, and suddenly you have the Summa Theologia in your, in your mind, and you know everything you need to know about the faith? No. Doesn't happen this way, does it? Doesn't happen this way. You have your struggle that you brought with you into the church. You have all your thoughts. You're right there. You're thinking about Jerusalem, the temple, and now there is these people saying, it's a time for liberation. Well, you're thinking, well, maybe that's what Christ wants. He's the Messiah. He may have come to free us from the Romans. So you can see how that had a very strong tug on the church. Very strong. Now, Concomitant with this, in parallel, you had what? You had St. Paul doing what? Converting the Gentiles. And many of them are Romans. The enemy. The enemy. Romans. Brothers and sisters. Ouch. 
Okay? You see the problem? This is a fundamental tension in the life of the church. And as you think about it, it's truly a miracle of the Holy Spirit that the church survived. In fact, the survival of the church every day is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It is the longest lasting miracle of all. That's what the church is. Who do you think had the upper hand in the church? The Gentiles or the Christians of Jewish background? The Christians of Jewish background. Now let's think about it for a second. And let's think about it in terms of Antioch, because Antioch is a very important city. Antioch is a cosmopolitan city. Rich, lots of Greeks, lots of Jews, lots of everything. A little bit like New York, right? I don't know if you could have found bagels in Antioch, but pretty much everything else. We know that there were Christian communities in Antioch. And again, the idealistic view is that you had one Christian community in Antioch. One church. You think so? No. You had the Jews who had converted, who had their own church. And then you had the Gentiles who had converted, who had another church. And do you think they broke the bread together? Good luck. Why? Think about it. Breaking the bread means what? We're going to sit together and share a meal. Right? It is a holy meal, but it's a meal. What did Moses say about that? As far as eating with the Gentiles? No way, Jose, said Moses. You're not going to do that. So here you are. You got one, and you got the other. Right when the Christians were being called Christians, you have that problem. We invented nothing new. It was there, right there. Now, that problem, the problem gets to be compounded by what? By political movement. And let me be very clear. On the, from a dogmatic or theological point of view, there was never a question in the minds of the Christians of Jewish background that the Gentiles should be admitted. There was never a debate. That's not what the problem was. The problem was political. You are seeking support for the temple. You want people to support the temple. Right? So what are you going to do? Number one, you're going to try to keep the Christians all supportive of the temple. So you would want to restrict it to the Jews. If all the Christians were of Jewish background, there would be no problem. There would be no tension. But then you got that Paul going on and on and on about him being the apostle to the Gentiles and converting all these people. What's up with him? So now what do you try and do? Well, okay, he's bringing all these people into the church. Fine. We need them to support the temple. You understand? You need to support the temple. How do you support the temple? Say that again. Well, you're not going to make them Jews, but you want them to do what the Jews do. Circumcision. When we say circumcision, we just don't mean the act. We mean the whole enchilada. Because with circumcision comes all the Jewish feasts we talked about, the pilgrimage to the temple, the gift to the temple, the sacrifice of the temple, you're hooked into the temple. What is the danger for Christianity? The danger is now Christianity is married to the temple. And Paul and St. Peter and the apostles saw that very clearly. But they had to manage it. And they had different views on it. So, you know how oftentimes you have the you have some theologians who will um, tell us that, you know, how could Peter be the one who has the keys? Because in Antioch, when he was invited, he wanted to eat with the, with the Gentiles, but then he decided not to. And then it was Paul who came and Paul who corrected him and told him his fault. You know, you know that passage, do you? All right, I don't have to go over it. So, essentially, St. Peter went to Antioch, and then he was supposed to, uh, to celebrate with both communities. But when representatives of James come from Jerusalem, he sticks only with the Christians of Jewish background. He doesn't go to the other community. And then Paul comes, and he chides him. How could you do that? And typically, they ascribe this to Peter being afraid, or Peter being uh, a coward. 
Well, if you know anything about St. Peter's character, cowardice is not the first thing that comes to mind. Okay? St. Peter had a different problem than St. Paul. St. Peter had to rule the church. He had to manage the church. St. Paul was focused on the missionary activity of the church. His focus was to make sure that we do not tie the church to Jerusalem. And St. Peter was in agreement with him. If you read his letters, you will see that it's very clear. But he had a different pastoral problem to contend with. He had two communities. And he was concerned that he, can, he, can, he, he will lose one of them. That if he, as the head of the church, was to effectively, pastorally, condone his pres- by his presence the fact that Jews and Gentiles can eat together, he could lose all these people. So he had to choose between two evils, in a sense. And he chose the lesser for the benefit of the church. Notice, not for his benefit. It didn't make him look good. And you know what? That's a constant of the popes. It is something that happens to the popes regularly because they're always trying to solve problems that are very difficult and nasty between different groups. And the perfect example, of course, is Pius XII, who was accused that he actually was... uh, you know, supportive of Hitler and all that nonsense. When in fact, Pius XII did not, did not, the reason why Pius XII did not publicly decry the action of Hitler and the SS was because the Jews themselves asked him not to do it. And that was based on the experience of Holland. In Holland, all the Christian communities decided to protest the actions of the SS against the Jews. The SS wrote back and said, if you do that, we'll step up our persecution of the Jews and we'll go after Christians of Jewish background. All the Christian communities backed off except the Catholics. So a letter of protestation was read in all the Catholic Church and effectively the SS stepped up the persecution against the Jews and went after Catholics of Jewish background. And this is how Edith Stein ended up dying in Auschwitz because of this. And Paul, Pius XII knew about that. And he decided to remain silent. Knowing full well, he wrote in his memoirs that future generations will blame him for it. This is the role of, the role of the Holy Father is not an easy role. It's the hardest of them all. And we see it right there portrayed in that crisis in, in, uh, in um, Ephesus, when Peter was faced with this dilemma and he had to choose the wisest course. St. Paul had a freer hand. We have two perspectives over the issue. Both of them are right, but they're presented differently. However, prior to that, that issue of whether we can admit the Gentiles and whether they, they, they need to be, not, not whether we should admit the Gentiles, but whether they should be bound, bound by the law of Moses, was addressed in the First Council. In 49 AD, the Council of Jerusalem. Paul goes there and then he explains what's going on. This is what's going on in Antioch today. Do we have to force those Gentiles to abide by the rules of cleanliness? You can eat this, you can't eat that, eat this, don't eat that. Or can we just let go of it? Okay. And in that council, Peter is the one who said, you know how we've admitted Cornelius into the church. Why should we impose upon them a law that neither us nor our forefathers could actually live by? We're not going to do that. And he spoke, therefore, dogmatically. He spoke essentially ex cathedra. Peter spoke. That is one of the foundations of the primacy of the Holy Father. He can speak by himself dogmatically. And he did it. Peter did. Alone. James, Bishop of Jerusalem, has a a community of Christians of Jewish background. So he has to contend with the issue on the pastoral level. That's what he does. He says, all you have to do is abstain from certain food and fornication and you'll be fine effectively bringing them to the covenant of Noah. The only restrictions he imposed are the restrictions imposed through the covenant of Noah. And the covenant of Noah applies to everyone. And no one in his community could actually protest. That was a wise move on his part. But that's pastoral. It's not dogmatic. So again, some commentators or pastors would say, well, you know, Peter spoke first, but it was James who had the last word. Uh Uh-uh. Not so. Peter spoke theologically and dogmatically. James spoke pastorally. Not the same thing. Now you think the issue is resolved. We're done. 
Bliss, happiness, joy is ahead of us. Guess what happens right after that? Confusion. Dissent. Criticism. Refusal. The party of the Christians of Jewish background attached to the temple is mounting, is getting stronger and stronger by the day. Just as the Jewish nationalism is going up around the temple, their, their, their strength is going up. So it would seem that the words of the, of the council were ignored. Sort of, you know, if we were Christians of that time, maybe living in Antioch and doing a Bible study, we might be saying, well, you know, that council of Jerusalem, I mean, it wasn't dogmatic, was it? It was just pastoral. And look what it created. It, it basically told those Christians of Jewish background they can do whatever they want. Of course, we, we don't say that today. Because after Vatican II, which is an amazing council of the church, what happened? Joy, bliss, peace, harmony, and concord were found in the church, right? No. So, effectively, after the Council of Jerusalem, what you got was the opposite of what the council wanted to see implemented. Just after almost every council. It's the constant of the church that every time the light of truth shines forth through the council, it will be followed by years of confusion because the church is a battleground. We're constantly fighting this battle until the last day. It will never stop. Now, I'd, I'd like you to understand the situation in which St. Paul in particular finds himself, but I would contend also St. Peter. Because you see, St. Paul is effectively fighting this ill in all the churches. His most clearest letter on that subject is a letter to the Galatians. And I would invite you tonight to go back and read it. Because the Galatian church has now been effectively infected by this disease of being tied to circumcision, being tied back to the temple. But it wasn't the only one. Across all, all of Asia, the churches are tilting towards the notion that we have to support the temple. I would even contend that the majority of the churches are in that position. The minority is in the other position. And effectively, St. Paul is invited to go to Jerusalem, and he does so knowing that it's very dangerous in 58. As soon as he's seen in the temple, so when he gets to the, te when he gets to the elder uh, of, the, of the church, when he speaks to um, the Christians in Jerusalem, they tell him that there is a lot of suspicion about him and that he should explain himself before the temple. You notice there's still this connection. They haven't separated the two. And so he goes to the temple. But then he's accused falsely of bringing with him an unclean inside the temple. And you know what the, what the uh, sentence is. It's death. Luckily, he's, he's arrested by Romans. And then he's uh, put in jail. And um, he's put in jail in 58. And Felix, who recognizes innocence, kept him in jail for two years. In 59, he's replaced by Festus, and he appears before Agrippa II and Berenice, his sister. I'm sure you're familiar with that text. And they also recognize his innocence, but he stayed in jail for two years. In 60, he's sent to Rome, and from 60 to 63, he's in parole. He can go out, but he's connect, he, he has to stay next to where... where um, he's in, um, uh, he has limited freedom, so to speak. And then in 63, finally... He resumes his missionary activities and goes back to Rome in 67 where um, he is killed. And he is killed um, during the Neronian persecution in 67. And we have re reason to believe that both St. Paul and St. Peter were actually betrayed to the Romans by members of the church by Catholics. And the, and the reason, the fundamental reason why was this happening is because they could see 
that he was pulling completely away from the support of the temple, the national support of Israel, the support of the Jewish people in their fight against Jerusalem. And he dies, when he dies, the church, the Catholic church, is effectively dominated by Christians with very strong Jewish ties, and they have not yet separated from the temple. When does the separation occur? In fact, you didn't, you didn't see that, but it occurred. It started in 66 AD when the Zealots initiated the war of the Jews against the Romans. And then the actual the Bishop of uh, Jerusalem, um, who replaced St. James, his name is uh, Simeon. He was cousin of our Lord. He and the Christians went to Pella, a little city up in Galilee. That is momentous, because when they did that, they effectively said, we are now separate from the temple. And when Titus came in 70, and this, when, when in 70 Titus destroyed the temple, that put an end to a very strong tendency within the church that was threatening its future. Because when the temple went away, there were more, more sacrifices, nothing to support, all that died. Not for long, however, because it would resurface under a number of heresies, most notably Gnosticism. Now, that is the context of those 40 years, and that is why you have the overlap. Because you see, Christ came and Christ gave that mission to the apostles. Go forth, baptizing make nations disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice he said make nations disciples. He didn't say make disciples of every nation. Alright? There's a big difference between the two. Every nation needs to be a disciple of Christ. When Christ gave this command, he said also, and behold, I am with you until the consummation of the ages. I am with you until the consummation of the ages. Let me ask this question. If Christ said, I am with you until the consummation of the ages, you think he meant by this, that will be the little guy holding guitar, walking by you, singing Gumbaya as you go around doing your things? Is that what he had in mind? No. Who said those words to the apostle? Was it Christ before the resurrection? Christ after the resurrection? It was the risen Christ. The risen Christ gave that mission. And who is the risen Christ then? He is the one to whom everything has been given. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. If he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he says to his apostles, go forth, do this, and I am with you. What does that mean about his kingdom? Are we living in his kingdom? Yes or no? Yes. So the kingdom is established. Now that might sound like a small little poem, but it isn't. Think about it. The kingdom is established. Here it is it's established, and then the church is going through all these problems. How could it be established? You see, if by established we mean everything is going to be hunky-dory, we're in control, no problems, the church runs like a ship, everybody knows what it's supposed to do, and we're done then we are bound for disappointments. It doesn't look like this, does it? It doesn't look like this. So this view, this materialistic view of the kingdom of God needs to go bye-bye. Because it does not map to reality. There's nothing real about it. So therefore, what does it mean for Christ to say, I am with you? How is he with us? He is with us in a way that is that could be disappointing. He is with us through the sacraments. He is with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in His church. That's how He is with us. But the rest is up to us. For instance, Christ never, never told His disciples, never gave the explicit command, you will not worship at the temple. Never said that, did He? He said something about he said something to the Samaritan woman about the time is coming where we will worship uh, the Father or God in spirit and in truth. But that does not mean what modern Americans think it means. 
the I did it my way, Jesus and I deal. It means none of that. Okay? Because the spirit is synonymous with wind and with cloud and it brings us back to the Exodus. Right? That statement doesn't mean we, we're, not gonna set, we're not going to worship God at the temple. It means we, we are going to worship Him with the Holy Spirit. So all the more reason to go and worship Him at the temple, it seems. Christ, when He was with His apostles, never said to them, from now on, you can have, you know, bacon. Go for it. You know, pig was an unclean food. You cannot eat pig if you're a Jew. Just kidding. Then say, okay, that, that's it, we're done. We can eat bacon. You know, Peter, what do you want? Three eggs or two? Can he, okay, so how do you figure that? Here is a Gentile who has a farm. He's a farmer. And he owns pigs. He hears the words of St. Andrew, and he goes, you know what, that makes sense. I, I want to be baptized. And he's got a herd of 250 pigs. What do you do with that guy? He's going to go to the temple? Well, what do you do with his pigs? You, you see, Christ never told them, alright, this is going to be solved. Follow this recipe. Step one. Did he? No. And he never does. Why? Because he did not write a book of Christian behavior. He gave us a mother, which is the church. And he said to us, listen to mom. Mom knows best. Listen to her. And our job is to align our conscience, form our conscience, according to the teachings of the church. Then we can follow our conscience. We can't just follow our conscience because, oh, I've got a conscience. I'm going to follow it. Conscience must be formed to the truth. And the truth is in the church. Because that's what he formed. Otherwise, you would have told them straight from the beginning, folks, guys, this is what I want you to do. Here it is. Here's the book. Follow this. And everything will be okay. Never did that. Notice how Christ directed Peter through effectively a dream. Right? And just as he directs Peter this way, I am convinced that in many occasions he will direct the Holy Father the same way. That's part of the office he gave him because it's a, it's a very difficult charge to carry. So you understand now why you had that period of 40 years where the two had to coexist? Because of human realities. And because Christ did not come to override human realities. He came to make it possible for us to choose what is right. But it had to take time. They had to go through all the struggle, all the difficulties, thinking about it, to understand what choices they had to make. Now, a couple more things. I mentioned earlier millenarism. Millenarism is this tendency. Let me actually read you the definition. It's a pretty good one. Millenarism is the belief by a religious, social, or political group or movement in a coming major transformation of society after which all things will be changed in the positive or sometimes negative or ambiguous, direction. Millennialism is a specific form of millennialism based on a 1,000 year cycle. Alright? Millennialism is the notion that this thing will then usher a 1,000 year of peace. Millennialism is well and alive, alive and kicking today. And we call it conspiracy theories. Okay? There's a whole bunch of those floating around. People today, many people, many Catholics are actually millenarists. They're somehow thinking that some big thing is going to happen. You know, I don't know, UFOs are going to show up and give us all balloons and lollipops and we'll be all happy. Or some sort of, you know, some such thing and then everything will be okay. Others are, are just expecting the big one. I don't mean the earthquake. I mean the stock exchange falling apart, right? Or others, you know, the price of oil is going to go up and, you know, Y2K, remember Y2K? Remember the, the, right. I'm in IT. I'm in IT. I do that kind of stuff. So, I knew intimately well what was, what guys in, in my field were doing. And so, I remember vividly a friend of mine asked me, what's going to happen? You know, 2000. I looked at him and said, nothing. Nothing at all. 
You mean you don't stock food and water and well, well, you know, we live in California. You should have something because there's an earthquake at one point. I think that's why you have some water and food and cans of tuna, what have you. But that's about it. Nothing? No, no, nothing. Guess what? Nothing happened. But the expectation was that something absolutely incredible is going to happen and, you know, whatever. This kind of thought stems from what? It stems from, number one, from a, an attitude of one who is, uh, who thinks of himself as failing, as being on the loser side. You notice Bill Gates never talk about the end of something? You notice that? You ever heard Bill Gates saying, you know, the end of the world is coming? Sell all your stocks to Microsoft? Just run. He, no, he doesn't, does he? It's the folks who are not in control that concocts the, those types of things. Today, as it was in Jerusalem back then, when the zealous and others were not in control. So the notion, therefore, that there's going to be the Messiah coming down and he's going to establish his reign in 1,000 years and everything's going to be fine. This millennial, millennialism, the millennium, we find St. John in his apocalypse speaking about the millennium. You, you know that. You know what I'm talking about, right? We're going to look closely at this. You know, and then a thousand years were established and all that good stuff. And then, of course, today the interpretation is when the Messiah will come and sometime in the future, he will establish his kingdom and the capital will be of Washington, of course. No, I'm just kidding. The Jerusalem. And uh, for 1,000 years, we will just have 1,000 years of bliss. You know, I really, it's really funny when people speak this way because you can tell right away that they are being completely irrational. And I'll explain to you why. Let me ask you this very simple question. Is eating a salad a good thing? Eating a salad is a good thing, right? It's good for your body, it's good for your health. It's a good thing, eating a salad, right? Let's not go through the dressing deal. Just eating salad. Even better, eating broccoli. Anybody would object eating broccoli is a bad thing? Eating broccoli is a good thing, right? So, so now let me ask you this question. Let's suppose the millennium started right now. The Lord is reigning in Jerusalem. And we are going to eat broccoli. Does this mean that suddenly we all love broccoli? Well, wait a minute. It's, a, it's, it's a peace and harmony and... Uh, all that good stuff. Shouldn't we all like broccoli? You see how that kind of thinking is utopian? It ignores the reality of the body. It ignores the reality of the human. And it ignores free will. It doesn't work this way. It doesn't work this way. Christ does not need a thousand years. He's got already two thousand with the church. This is not his plan. That is why, if, if, incidentally, many of the fathers, like St. John Chrysostom, the doctor of the church, ignored the book of Revelation because of, of their dealings with the millennialists who used that book to prove, see, it's right here in this book. Christ is going to come and he's going to establish his year 1,000 years and, and, and St. John, John Chrysostom stayed away from it and others as well. We'll address this issue more when we get to it. But that was part of the current of thoughts when the book of Revelation was penned down. So if you keep all that in mind, if you keep thinking about all this, you, kind of you start to realize or recognize that there is a political, historical, cultural reality behind the book. It was not written to talk about the conflict between the United States and communist Russia. At least not directly. Now through the other senses of scripture, you can apply it to the modern world, absolutely. You can find application to your own life. Yes. And it can be very rich and rewarding to do so. Not a problem. I'm not at all saying that the only meaning was about the events that took place between 3380 and 780. It's not what I'm alluding to. What I'm saying is that without understanding that initial context, we cannot make meaningful and proper, proper projection for our own time. And that's why we have to be careful in understanding that context and understanding the book in its context. What I'm going to do next time, and this is going to complete this cycle, is focus on Rome. We need now to understand the Roman context. This is one context we have not looked at at all, because Rome is going to play an important role in this. So that's what we're going to do next 
lecture, and then we'll finish this cycle. Following this, we're going to have four lectures on the angels. Because so far, we've been very, very selfish in thinking that the book of Revelation is only about us. When major players in the book of Revelation are the angels, and most often than not, we ignore them, and we know nothing about them. So it's about time to change this a little bit. Incidentally, you know how often I told you if you want to start having a devotion to God an angel, ask him to help you find a parking space. Well, I was just reading this article in WDN written by a renowned angelologist who basically somebody studies angels. And he was complaining about the fact that we tend to have a utilitarian relationship to the angels. And he said, you know, angels are not just for, for finding a parking space. I went, whoops. So... I want to reiterate, what I said was, if you want to start your devotion to your God and angel, okay? The key here is devotion. That's a good way to start because it can, it can make his presence more tangible for you. But I did not mean by this to use him for utilitarian purposes. That's not what I said. I just wanted this on the, on the record. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.